All right, so yeah, if you would, uh, go ahead and uh, turn with me uh, in God's Word to the Gospel of Matthew. Like Mark said, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 13. Last week we looked at the uh, parable of the sower. This week we are going to be looking at the parable of the weeds. Split up into two sections and starts in verse 24. And I asked you would listen carefully for this is God's word. He, being Jesus, put another parable before them, saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to gather, to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. And if you would skip ahead to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. If you would, pray with me. Father, we come here hungry for a word from you. Many of us walk in here tired and frustrated and broken and just plagued by the weight of everything going on in the world and plagued by the weight of our own sin. And so particularly in this moment, we are even more acutely aware of our brokenness and that in and of ourselves we have nothing to offer. And so we come before you humbly asking that you would um, extend grace to us, that you would meet us where we are at, that you would show us Jesus more clearly than we have ever seen him before. You would soften our hearts to his gospel, that you would grow your kingdom, and that we would see and savor Jesus and be more conformed into his image. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes Jesus makes me cringe a little bit. As a preacher, looking at at least the first half of Jesus' sermon, just where he introduces the parable, Jesus just makes me cringe a little bit. Just just consider the first half of the passage, uh, starting in verse 24 through 30. Jesus gives this parable 
to the crowd. And Jesus says he will move on to explain it and give more detail you know, later in a few hours in a private conversation with the disciples. But when Jesus is preaching to the crowd, he, he honestly doesn't really give them much to go on. He gives them zero interpretation, zero application. He just kind of introduces this weird metaphor saying that the kingdom of God is like a field. And in this field, there's good seed and bad seed. There's weed and there's wheat. And he's saying that there currently is and there will be until the end of time just a, a mixed bag in the world and in his kingdom. He gives no explanation for what it means, no interpretation, no application. So just as a preacher myself, as a communicator, I look at Jesus and I'm like, oh, that's going to be a tough one to recover from. You are going to get a lot of weird emails after that one. Like, Jesus, you're not defining your terms at all. You're saying one thing, but because you're not explaining it, there's going to be hundreds and thousands of different interpretations and applications. There's going to be mass confusion if you don't wrap this thing up better. So, so I think that the very first weird thing about this parable is that when, at least when Jesus is preaching to the crowd, he, he does not try very hard to be clear. He doesn't go very far to try and have his point understood, at least by the crowd, anyway. And the second just kind of strange or bizarre thing about Jesus' words here is that in this parable, Jesus seems to be pulling us in the exact opposite direction of things that he has already said in the book of Matthew. If you were to go back and read Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, Jesus' very first public words, the very first words out of his mouth when he began his ministry was, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He just echoed John the Baptist and he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he started his ministry in a very urgent tone. He's saying, guys, the kingdom is here. It is knocking on the door. Time is running out. So you need to repent of your sins and turn to the Lord right now. It's a very urgent and quick paced call. But in this parable, when the servants ask the master if he wants them to remove the weeds from the wheat, Jesus says, nah, just let them sit there for a little bit. Give it time, leave them be, there, there's no rush. And here Jesus seems to be taking a much slower and a much more patient approach to kingdom living. Or I've thought about Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus tells us to beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So there Jesus is instructing his disciples, hey guys, be on the lookout we need to be practicing discernment because there are Christian imposters who look to infiltrate God's people and lead them away from the gospel. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the apostle Paul would go so far as to say that those people need to be removed from the church. They need to be kicked out of the church. He, he says, don't even eat with such a person. So on one hand, Jesus seems to emphasize discernment and purity and protection within the people of God. But then in this parable, when it is evident that wheat and weeds are growing together, Jesus says, just give it some time. Let them both grow up together until the harvest. There's just a tension 
in Jesus' words here that has just had me in knots all week. And it's just really hard to kind of make sense of Jesus. Well, which way do you want us to go? So before we even get into the specifics of this parable, I think Jesus just in that tension that he has something for us. Why would Jesus say all these strange and unclear things and not give an explanation? Why does he say weird things to the crowd, but then give a very helpful answer to the disciples later? Jesus, why are you speaking in these riddles and these parables? Well, the answer to that is found in some of Jesus' words last week, and, and Mark touched on this. There's going to be a bit of overlap, but... I think it bears repeating that the purpose of the parables is to test our spiritual appetites. That they are meant to be a heart check for us as disciples. It it seems like Jesus purposefully says strange or, or purposefully vague things just to see how our hearts respond. And how we respond reveals a lot about our relationship with him. So last week in verse 13, Jesus said, This is why I speak in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And down a little later, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and blessed are your ears, for they hear. So for example, if we can hear Jesus say that the kingdom is like a mustard seed, Or that the kingdom is like a pearl of great price. If we can hear that and be like, huh, that's kind of weird. No idea what that means, but oh well, I'm going to move on because that doesn't really make any sense. That's really telling about our hearts. Technically, it's seeing. Technically, it's hearing. That input has gone into your eyes and ears, but it's not seeing and hearing with spiritual eyes and ears. Versus if we say, yeah, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but I, I know that I love Jesus. And I want to know and love him more. So I'm okay with not having a cookie cutter, easy, easy soundbite answer right now. And I'm just going to sit in it for a while and I'm going to ask some more questions. But those are two very different responses. And the purpose of the parables is to reveal our hearts and how we respond towards him. So just as we get started in in our second week in the parables, take these parables as a diagnostic test. Aim for some spiritual self-awareness. Ask yourself, how is my heart responding to God's word? Is it apathetic and cold and hard and indifferent towards the Lord? Or is it soft and warm and inviting and and excited to hear from God? And, And regardless of where you fall on that spectrum, ask the Lord for more Softness, more desire, and more receptivity. The purpose of the parables is to test our spiritual appetites. I was kind of looking at, after looking at that broad purpose and why Jesus speaks the way that he does here, let's get into some of the more specifics of this parable. And we're actually going to be looking at the second half of Jesus' discourse where he is explaining the parables to the disciples. He's kind of giving his interpretation and his application. In verse 36... He says, Then the crowds left and went into the house, and as his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field, he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. 
The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And and we can stop right there. So the first thing that Jesus is teaching us in this parable about kingdom living is about the presence of spiritual beings and spiritual realities and spiritual workings. Sometimes things that we're not even really aware of. Jesus says that he is the son of man. He says that the devil is active and at work in the world sowing seeds of evil and then that the angels have this really cool job of of reaping. You know, they have a very active and a a present role in in this spiritual world going on all around us. And I think especially for Christians living in the 21st century in in a very Western society, that this, this kind of talk can make us a little uncomfortable. You know, we, we live in a secular age. We live in an age which attempts to remove any sort of transcendence, any sense of the divine is removed from our worldview. We live in a time and an age in which the physical, the material, the mathematical, and the scientific, where those things are king and those things are law. And that only what you can see and prove and provide empirical evidence for, those are the only things that are real and trustworthy. And what Jesus is showing us and reminding us of in this parable is that in addition to our physical world that we see all around us, is that there is a very real and a very active spiritual world. Very famously in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Reminds me of Daniel chapter 10, where for various reasons, Daniel is just going through a hard time. He is under a lot of stress and a lot of heartache, and for weeks he is praying and fasting and crying out to the Lord for help. And so after three weeks of him praying and crying out to the Lord, an angel shows up. And this angel says to Daniel, I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Okay, think about that. Imagine that you're praying and fasting for three weeks and then an angel comes... And says, I only came because of your words, because you were praying, which that's crazy. But then on top of that, the angel says, I would have gotten here sooner. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. We were in some sort of battle, some sort of wrestling match or argument or battle. And I couldn't defeat him. And it was only when Michael, another angel, came to my assistance and we were able to overcome this prince of Persia. That's just insane to think about. And Parker, Colorado. We don't think and talk like that. I think of 2 Kings chapter 6. Elisha is leading the people of Israel into battle against the kingdom of of Syria. And one night, as Elisha and the Israelites were sleeping, the Syrians surrounded the city. They went up to the mountains and the hills surrounding the city. And Elisha woke up in the morning and he said, Oh man, they have more than we do. We're outnumbered. And so we prayed to the Lord and said, God, what are we going to do? On paper, we are going to lose 10 out of 10 times. So the Lord said this to Elijah. He said, do not be afraid. 
for there are more of us than there are of them. And then the Lord opened the eyes of Elisha, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around him. And when the Syrians came down against him, the Lord struck all of them down with blindness. Elisha was only able to see with his physical earthly eyes. And the Lord granted him spiritual eyes to see the spiritual army of horses and chariots of fire that the Lord had provided. And even though they were outnumbered on paper, there were spiritual forces and dynamics and realities at play. And I think here in Matthew 13, Jesus is more or less saying the same thing. There are spiritual realities and forces at work in our lives that we need to recognize and make room for. It's not all up to us and what we can see. I mean, think of how that would affect your parenting. You can do everything right. Or you can do everything wrong. And your kid is still going to surprise you. It is not just a matter of what you put into them. It's not just a a physical, earthly thing. There's a spiritual side to it. I think about this when it comes to teaching and preaching and when it comes to our evangelism. Say I'm talking to an unbeliever. I can answer every single question that they have. Not always, but say that I can. Like, I can answer every question, give a great defense. I can satisfy their mental curiosity perfectly but there's still a cold heart. It's not just a matter of information, it's a matter of spiritual transformation. Then there are things like Daniel and Elisha. There are just spiritual battles going on around us all the time that we might not even be aware of. And part of Jesus calling us to kingdom living is to live in both worlds and to immerse ourselves in the words and ways of Jesus who will give us eyes to see and ears to hear and equip us to do that faithfully. Which leads us to to the second thing that Jesus has for us in this parable. And while many of these spiritual dynamics and workings are, are hidden right now, that will not always be so. In the end, everything is going to be revealed. In verse 40, Jesus goes on to say, Just as the weeds are gathered... And burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Okay, so while earlier in the parable, Jesus says, Let the weeds grow along with the wheat. Here he's saying that on this side of eternity... The church in the world is always going to be a mixed bag, but in the end, truth is going to come out. The Lord is going to separate the sheep from the goats, and the sinners will be met with justice, and the righteous will be met with glory. And this is the second time in the book of Matthew that Jesus has brought up up the topic of judgment and of hell. He referenced it once back in Matthew chapter 8. Again, here in chapter 13, and honestly, the further that you go in Matthew, the more Jesus is going to talk about it. Once you reach chapters 22, 23, 24, and 25, it is all over those pages. And I do believe that one of the most loving things that Jesus ever did was to talk clearly and frequently about the realities of hell. 
In fact, Jesus talks more about hell than any other biblical author. He is sometimes called the theologian of hell. And while sin and lawlessness often go unpunished in the world and even sometimes in the church, Jesus is clear that on judgment day, every thought, word, and deed will be revealed and all sin will be met with God's wrath and his justice. And oftentimes when we come across these biblical descriptions of hell where Jesus describes it as a fiery furnace or as a place of darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, oftentimes we begin to wonder, Jesus, are are you being serious? Are are you being literal or are you just being metaphorical here? Are you just trying to to paint a picture? And, And those can be good and helpful questions insofar as we are trying to be good students of God's word and interpret it rightly, those are great questions. But in my experience, some of those questions, you know, of Jesus, Jesus, are you being literal? Are you being metaphorical? Sometimes behind those questions is also an attempt to soften or de-emphasize or take the edge off of what God has plainly said. And I think it's a very dangerous and very prideful thing to begin to doubt what God has clearly told us. Jonathan Edwards, speaking about Jesus' words here being literal or metaphorical, he says this, that when metaphors are used in Scripture about spiritual things, it is because they fall short of the literal truth. So the reason that any sign or symbol exists is to point us to a greater reality. So say you're driving along the road and you see a sign, a symbol that says Denver, 25 miles north. Obviously, that sign and that symbol cannot encapsulate all that the city of Denver is. It is just pointing you towards the greater reality. Likewise, even if Jesus is speaking symbolically, that should not be a comfort to us. In fact, that should sober us up very quickly. If fiery furnace place of darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, if that's the best that Jesus can do within the confines of human language, then the reality must be so much worse. And like Mark said when we were going through our New City Catechism, that the good news of the gospel is only as good as the bad news is. If you think lightly of hell, it's because you think lightly of the cross and what Jesus accomplished there. So if you want to glory and revel and make much of Jesus at the cross, then you have to make much of what he has saved us from. And so while Jesus' words to his disciples and his followers, which we're going to look at in just a moment, is to wait and to have patience regarding the presence of sin and lawlessness, I do not think that he is offering those same words to the unbelievers who he is speaking to. And so if you do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then I just want to take this moment and ask you to hear the offer of forgiveness and righteousness that he offers to you. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I do believe I am the foremost. He came into the world to save me and to save you. He left the throne room of heaven left the glory that he was deserving of. He put on frail human flesh, lived a perfect, sinless life, 
And he offered that perfect and sinless life in your place when he went to the cross. At the cross, he took your sin against a perfect and a holy God, placed it on his shoulders, and in exchange, he offers you the forgiveness and the righteousness and the holiness of God. He's not waiting for you to clean yourself up or make yourself a little better. He's not asking for you to work harder or find some way to pay him back. He is only asking that you come with empty hands and a broken spirit and that you put your faith in him and him alone. So if we want to revel in the offer of the gospel, then we have to also take very seriously what Jesus is saving us from. And so to the unbeliever in the room, as I feel like I've said many times over the last few years, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. The offer of grace still extends to you. Now, moving on to the last thing that I want us to see from this parable. Let's actually jump back to the first half of Jesus' sermon. When he's still speaking to the crowds, we'll pick up in verse 28. And, and I think that the answer that Jesus gives here, I, I think this is what holds the most tension. Okay, this is, you know, probably holds the most long-lasting impact for us as we go forward this week. And in verse 28, the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. But let them both grow until the harvest. And we can stop right there. And like I said at the beginning, these are the words that they've had me in knots this week. It, It just strikes me as odd that in just a few verses, what we just talked about, Jesus is going to give clear and dire warnings about hell and urges listeners towards immediate repentance that just before that, Jesus can instruct his disciples Say, hey, just just let things be for a moment. Yes, sin and evil are progressing rapidly, but just chill out for a minute. And I'm sure that there are more, but I can think of just one main reason why Jesus would instruct us not to remove the weeds and to let them grow up with the wheat. That is because Jesus can turn weed into wheat. Just because someone is currently under the category of weed does not mean that they are always going to be there. By the power of the gospel and through the forgiveness and the redemption of Jesus Christ, weeds can become wheat. And and if you think about it, that is the story of every single believer. None of us were born as good, holy, healthy, pure grains of wheat, honoring and pleasing to the Lord. We were born with our, just by nature, with our hearts cold and indifferent and hard toward Jesus. I mean, if my parents in my church growing up had looked at young little sinful Matthew, I'd be like, that guy is not one of us. He is messed up real bad. Get him out of here because he is not one of us. And I, I never would have heard the gospel. They kind of had to let this weed continue to be a weed and to grow up. And to be among the wheat so that I could hear of Jesus. I think of what about an adult believer who, you know, makes the really difficult decision to come to church. They're just considering the claims of Christ and then they walk in here and they can just feel they don't belong. And we can feel that they don't belong. They don't dress like us. They don't talk like us. They don't hug as much as we do. They just think, oh, they're a bunch of freaks. Like, what, what, what does the church do when a wheat comes to church? 
I've mentioned her name before, but I'm often reminded of uh, Rosaria Butterfield. She was a professor of literature at Syracuse University, and she was a big proponent of uh, LGBTQ and gave uh, a bunch of lectures on queer theory. She was in a relationship with a woman. So she was just publishing papers, and she was just kind of a rock star in her field. And then one day, a pastor and his wife befriended her and had her over to their house for dinner and started inviting them, inviting her to church. And she eventually became a believer, but I can guarantee you it was, it was a weird couple of months. Like on Sunday, she would be, you know, hearing the sermon, reading the word, singing her psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and then tomorrow morning on Monday, she's going to give a lecture on queer theory at her job. And when she eventually did become a believer, everything didn't change the next day. That church had to have a certain amount of grace and patience and understanding to let that weed come to know the Lord and to grow. Christian discipleship is a long game. It takes years and years and a lifetime of following Jesus. And in telling the servants to remove, to not remove the weeds from the wheat, I think that Jesus is telling us that fences are better than walls. Right, fences are better than walls. Yes, there does need to be some sort of division between the church and the world. I think that's why he has given us baptism and church membership. He has given us means and mechanisms of saying, this person is a believer. They are team Jesus. They are marked and distinguished and identified as belonging to the kingdom of God and not to the kingdom of the world. So we need those boundaries, but make it a fence, not a wall. If you make that boundary, if you make it a hundred foot tall wall that's also a hundred feet wide, no one is ever going to come to know Jesus. We have to have this category for letting the non-believer come to church. I'll close with this. I think this is just another way of saying that we need to have a gospel culture. I hope that's a language that we are all familiar with by now. If you've been coming for more than a month, I hope you have heard us talk about gospel culture. We want to have good theology. We want to be a pure church. We want to protect the church. We, we want to keep those fences there, but we do not want to make them taller than Christ gives us permission to. We want to be a church where people can feel welcome to not have to get their ish together. They can come with all their sins and their warts and know that Jesus died for them. I mean, think about what you were like when you were an unbeliever. It wasn't that pretty. And you didn't get where you are today just like that. It took years and years of mess-ups and sins and people showing grace and patience and love and kindness towards you. And so we want to extend that to the world because that is what Jesus has showed us, shown us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up and pick ourselves up and dust ourselves off and make us really pretty and beautiful. While we were sinners in the middle of our darkest sin, Jesus came and died for us. And we want to extend that same grace to the world. So towards that end, would you pray with me? Jesus, we do believe that you have come to us and met us in our darkest moment, in our deepest sin. And yet you looked on us with love and compassion. You sought us out 
Not because of anything in us or anything that we have done, but just because of your mercy and because you have loved us. We're just grateful for that and we praise you for it. We ask that you would continue to work in our lives to soften our hearts. Tell us to love you more and to love the world around us more. May we be a church that is known for how much we love you and love one another. Would you help us to continue to build a gospel culture, one that exudes the love and warmth and kindness that you have shown us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.